Good morning. Hey, what's the purpose of the Old Testament law in your life? What is the purpose of the law in the life of one who has been redeemed by Christ? That's our subject for this morning. It's a confusing topic. A lot of Christians today, a lot of churchgoers are puzzled by that question. As a Christian living under the new covenant, does the law matter to us at all? If not, why not? And if so, why? And how? Maybe this has happened to you before. Maybe you've gone to a family gathering or you're, you're just sharing with somebody at work and you engage in a conversation with an unbelieving friend. Or maybe you make that fateful decision to jump into a, a debate online on Facebook <laughs> about the Bible or about Christianity. And you're, you're in the midst of this discussion and this unbeliever who you hopefully really do have a concern for, but they're getting more stubborn and the language is getting more uh, conflicted. And the unbeliever says something like this to you. you. You Christians, you pick and choose which verses you want to obey. The Bible says that eating shellfish is a sin. But I saw you at Red Lobster last week. They always think they're really clever when they come up with these things, right? Like, as if this has never been brought up before. They think they're very clever. They think they've found your, your really hidden weak spot, shellfish. Or they say this, God says it's a sin to wear a garment of mixed fabric. But I'm sure you, all, you wear polyester blends all the time. Are they right? Not about the polyester blends. But are they right to question you? On that subject. Well, the answer depends on whether the Old Testament law still applies to us today, and we ought to have a good answer for that. As, as those who are always to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have, we should be able to answer that question, that challenge. Of course, there hasn't been a new question or a new objection to Christianity or the Bible for hundreds and hundreds of years. Nothing that hasn't been asked and answered many, many times before, but nevertheless, there's always those stubborn objectors out there, and most. Most of them, by the way, and you know this, they really actually haven't read the Bible, right? They haven't actually studied the Bible. They know just enough to be dangerous, don't they? They've read just enough of some blog, some anti-Christian blog or anti-Bible website to be dangerous and to come up with a question. So most of them don't even know where to find those verses about shellfish or about mixed fabrics. They're in the Bible, by the way. But they don't know where they are. So by the way, that's my, always my favorite response. Hey, can you give me a reference on that? I'd like to look it up for myself. Where is that verse exactly? And if they can do that, if they can do that, I ask them then, well, okay, so you found it in Leviticus. That's good. What's the historical context of Leviticus? Or, or I'll say, which, which uh, category of the law do those particular commands fit into. And I'll even give them the categories of the law if they want to know what they are. And if they come even close to getting that one right, which is extremely unlikely, I ask them to explain to me the difference between Israel and the church. And that usually ends the conversation. And by the way, that's just a really good tip for whenever you're talking to somebody who is, they don't seem to be asking because they really want to know, but they're just being stubborn objectors. Before you just start defending your position, do what? Ask questions. 
Ask a series of questions. Put them on the defensive a bit. Ask them to tell you why they're asking these questions. Be polite about it because we do want to always show love and concern for people. But make them defend their knowledge before you just take all your pearls and throw them before this particular person. But the reality is you could enjoy a red lobster this week. That's an amen, right? Good. That's one of my favorite places. That would break my heart, man. And you can wear that polyester blend shirt. It's fine. So we're going to talk about this a little bit today. What are, first of all, the categories of the Old Testament law, and do they apply to us? So I'm going to put some things on the, on the screen. We'll start here. Most Old Testament scholars three, see three main categories of Old Testament law, civil, ceremonial, and moral. And the primary difference between those are their purpose and use. The civil law, for example, was intended to govern everyday life in ancient Israel. It dealt mainly with relationships between individuals, but also sometimes the relationship of the individual to his his or her government. Things like proper behavior for an Israelite were covered. Crime and the settling of disputes, punishment, things of that nature. The civil law. The ceremonial law dealt specifically with Israel's priesthood. It talked about all of the sacrificial procedures that went with the sacrificial system in Israel. All the offerings, the festivals, the priestly duties, all of that stuff. It's the moral law that really stands out amongst those three, doesn't it? Why? Because it's rooted in the heart and character of God himself. God didn't just come up with a whole bunch of moral principles and say, yeah, these look good, let's just stick these on the people. No, the law, the moral law, reflects the heart and the character of God himself. And for that reason, the moral law is perpetual. Why? Because God doesn't change. It still reflects his heart and his character. For example, just as it's wrong to lie or to steal or to kill under the old covenant, it is still today wrong to lie and steal and kill under the new. So, Having just laid that out very quickly, let me ask you again, does the Old Testament law affect you and I today? (laughs) Although there's some debate among uh, certain circles of evangelicals, most Christians would agree that the moral law does have application to us today, and only in specific specific ways, which we'll talk about in just a second. But let let me just show you some reasons why these other ones don't work. Number one, the civil law, again, was given specifically to this ancient people group we call Israel, okay? And, and they had, back in that day, what we would consider today a sort of a, a primitive uh, code of governance and justice, things like an eye for an eye. We don't go around today stoning our sons for being disobedient and rebellious. Not that I haven't thought about it. Right, So, so that, that law has passed away because the church is not Israel. It's, the church is not a single nation of people. It's a universal organism that spreads across every tribe and every people and every nation across the globe. The civil law, civil law doesn't work. It doesn't apply to us today. The ceremonial law, of course, was superseded by the coming of Christ. He fulfills all of that, right? The Lamb of God has come and provided a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. We don't need to continue to repeat the sacrifices. And by the way, we don't have a temple to do it anyway. Correct? No longer do God's people need a priesthood because we have a greater high priest who constantly lives to make intercession for his people. So the, the ceremonial law has been rendered obsolete. And of course, that leaves us now with the moral law. Historically, the church has looked at the moral law, and at least from a reform perspective, we've talked about 
three uses of the law. This was actually codified by John Calvin back in the day. He talked about the three uses of the law in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. So let me give you what the three uses of the moral law are. Number one, the first use of the law is as a teacher or as a tutor. The law, the moral law, shows us both the perfect righteousness and holiness of God, and it shows us our unrighteousness and our unholiness. It provides that that brutal contrast that when we come to know Christ, we see so clearly he is so holy and I am so not holy. He is so righteous and I am so unrighteous. It shows us that we stand condemned because there's nothing that we can do to bridge that gap between his holiness and our unrighteousness. So we stand condemned by that. But the goal of the law and the moral law here is that it shows sinners their need for a savior. And it drives them to Christ by way of the gospel. And this is reflected in a couple of Paul's statements. We've read them already, Romans 3.20. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's through the law that we come to see that we're sinful and that we need a savior. In Galatians 3.24, he writes, The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. That's the first use of the law. And really, for our purposes, the most important, right? Good. The second use of the law is civil. There is a civil application of the moral law in the sense that it restrains evil in society. In fact, this is what Paul has in mind. When we get to Romans 13, boy, that's going to be fun. We're going to talk about the role of the government. Mm. The role of our sinful, wicked government. Mm. <laughs> right? But, but this is what Paul uses. He has in mind in Romans 13 when he talks about, this is hard for us to grasp, the governing authorities, even the pagan Roman governing authority of Nero back in Paul's day was a minister of God. That's what he says in Romans 13. Minister of God, an avenger who bears the sword for a reason. Why? To bring wrath against evildoers. So the law has that civil function. It punishes evildoers. And it restrains wickedness. Make sense? The third function of the law is actually for those of us who have trusted in Christ and have been saved by faith apart from works. It leads us into obedience for Christ's sake. It leads us into the very good works that Paul says in Ephesians 2.10 that God has laid out for us to walk in. This is a function of the law as well. In other words, the law tells the new covenant people of God what is going to please their heavenly father. This is what Jesus meant when he said, if you love me, you will what? You'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So this is the third use. Christians are not bound to the law as a way of salvation, but they remain under what Paul calls the law of Christ, which is our guide for holy living. Now, what exactly is the law of Christ? Well, Paul actually uses that phrase twice in his letters. He's not really specific about what he means, but most scholars, Bible teachers who have looked at this believe that what he's talking about when he says we're under the law of Christ is it's this summary statement that we read in Mark chapter 12. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Jesus said that that summed up the Old Testament law, including the Ten Commandments. So if you commit yourself to truly loving God and truly loving your neighbor, you're going to find yourself practicing God's moral law on a consistent basis. Again, not in a way of salvation, but in a way of obeying and pleasing your heavenly father. I hope that makes sense. 
Now, there's a reason I'm sharing all that. I know this is sort of a classroom-type situation. Some of you guys have probably been through, uh, you've been at master's and you've been through a theology class. You've heard some of this stuff. The reason I'm sharing this with you today is the whole theme of Romans chapter 7 is the Christian's relationship to the law. And so that was just, that's just a cursory look at it. We'll come back to this more in the next few weeks and expand upon it as well as we look at this. So that's enough for today. For now, grab your Bibles. Let's go to Romans chapter 7, and we'll look at our passage for today. So we're beginning Romans 7. Always exciting. Now, when we get to verse 14, it's really going to get controversial. This is one of the most well-known sections of the book of Romans for its controversy beginning in verse 14, but we have two Sundays before we get there. So you're going to have to be patient on that. I know some of you guys are excited to find out what I think about Romans 14 to the end. We'll get there. Now remember, Paul's just finished in chapter 6 telling these believers in Rome that they're not under law but under grace. Right? He's told them that they're not to offer themselves up as slaves to sin. In fact, it's funny, he's used three different... Uh, word pictures to talk about our union with Christ. He started with baptism, then he talked about slavery. Today he's going to talk about marriage. Paul's very good at these types of word pictures to help us understand principles. He's told the Roman church not to offer themselves up as slaves to sin, but instead offer up the parts of their bodies as instruments of righteousness. He tells them they've been set free from the power and the condemnation of the law. That's really important. We talk about, do we need the law in our life? They've been set free from the power of the law over them and the condemnation of the law. Why? Because they've died with Christ. They've been buried with Christ. They've been raised up with Christ to newness of life. And there's a reason why Paul's going to get into the law here. In fact, uh, a, a, a New Testament scholar by the name of Leon Morris, some of you guys have, read, guys have read him. He's passed away now. But he had this to say about why Paul dives into the law in this part of the letter. Here's what he writes. He says, The place of the law in God's scheme of things was a constant battleground in Paul's controversies with Jewish opponents. Think about that. Can you imagine if you, were, you had a Jewish background, you had come to know Christ, you were in this church in Rome, but the law means everything to you. And now Paul's making these, these rather jarring statements about, well, you're not under the law anymore, you're under grace. They would have been, uh, a little, bit, a little bit nervous about that. So Morris goes on to say this. For them, for these Jewish opponents, the law was the highest good, the very mark of God's kindness to his people. They studied it with the greatest of diligence, regarding even the smallest detail as important. They believed the law to be the central thing for any pious person who sought to live a life of service to God. But it seemed to them that Paul was rejecting this greatest of goods that God had given them. And Paul found himself in a difficult position. On the one hand, he could not regard the way of law, of law as a way of salvation, and he said that with uttermost conviction. But on the other hand, the law is the good gift of God, and rightly used, it is of great importance. So, really, today's passage, these first six verses we're going to look at, they're really an extension of chapter 6. He's dealing with the same subject. In fact, a lot of scholars have looked at the, the chapter divisions in Romans, and they think these six verses actually belong in chapter 6. It really doesn't matter to us today, but just know he's continuing an argument that started in Romans 6.15. And if you want to turn back there, you can look at it. In Romans 6.15, Paul wrote this, Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? In other words, why doesn't freedom from the law 
lead us to just go out there and sin like the Dickens. Can I say that's an old saying? To sin like crazy. What do the kids say today, Daniel? Okay, never mind. <laughs> You're getting old. Yeah. Why doesn't freedom from the law, if we're not under law anymore, well, why doesn't it just lead to, to wild sinning? Right? He's refuting the view that says this. I'm a believer now, and the law has nothing to do with my life anymore. He's refuting that. He's refuting the idea that, well, I'm a believer now, and it no longer matters how I live. Because I'm under grace. Let grace abound. Let's just go sin. He's refuting that idea. So once again, the, way, the reason he's... The, re, the, the, the answer that he comes to, why that can't be so, is because as Christians we're united with Jesus. Okay? Look at verse 1, chapter 7. Do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she shall be called what? An adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she's not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for what? For death. But now we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So quickly, let's just, I'm just going to outline the passage real fast. And actually, it's a very simple, Paul, Paul's so good to me here. Very simple outline for us to follow. Verse 1 is a statement of principle that he's going to build upon. Verses 2 and 3 are an illustration of the principle in verse 1. And verses 4 through 6 then represent Paul's application of that principle. Make sense? You see it on the screen? So my main focus really is to get to the back end of the passage, verses 4 through 6. That's really where the meat is. We'll go quickly through the first three verses They're really not hard to understand. Paul's drawing another word picture. First, baptism, then slavery, and now marriage. Notice in verse 1 that Paul's relaying what he believes is a universal truth. Something that he believes is self-evident. That's why he says here, do you not know, brothers and sisters? Do you not know this? Here's the proposition that he believes everyone ought to know. Here it is. That the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he or she lives. That's the principle in verse 1. That the law has jurisdiction or authority over a person as long as that person is alive. And then he adds parenthetically there, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. In other words, look, there's no excuse. You know what I'm talking about here. You know enough about the law to understand that this is true. Make sense? Now, when Paul says the law, he's referring to a spiritual law, the moral law, right? But look, we know this is true just from our American civil and criminal law. Think about this for a second. Uh, the other night, I, I was flipping around the TV, and I hit the news, and, and there was a high-speed chase on the freeway. What is it about those things you cannot turn away? Right? Uh, I mean, this guy, is, I, I, actually, I think it was a woman. She was going like 100 miles an hour uh, down the freeway, and you know, the black and whites are 
traveling a safe distance behind, their strategy is what? Just let her run out of gas, right? We're not going to... We're not going to push her. We're just going to hope she runs out of gas somehow. But she's making some crazy choices, right? Helicopters flying over. And there's a couple times you're watching it and you're like, oh, no, right? Because she's making crazy choices. She's almost hitting people. She's weaving in and out. And I'm thinking to myself, that's it. She's going to kill herself and maybe somebody else. Now, here's the question. If she had crashed and died, would the police still write her a speeding ticket? Right? Seems pretty. Would they, uh, well, we're going to go ahead and open a case anyway. We're going to prosecute her. Of course not, right? Why? The offender is dead and the matter is settled. That's the principle that Paul's talking about here. As long as a person is alive, the law has jurisdiction over him, but if he dies, no longer. Simple, right? Now comes the illustration of that principle. Look at verse 2. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. That makes sense, right? I mean, every time I do a wedding, every time I get to officiate a wedding, the bride and the groom, they vow what? Until death do us part. Classic language, typical language, right? So as long as hubby is alive, the married woman is bound by the law. But if he dies, she's released from the law. We know this to be true, okay? Verse 3. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she's to be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, right? So again, basic common sense. If the woman takes up with another guy while her husband is alive, we call her an adulteress. She's committing adultery. That's what she is. But if her husband pass away, passes away, she's free to remarry. There's no reason for us then to look at her and go, you're an adulteress, because hubby number one is gone. He's passed away. Good? All common sense stuff. Now, this passage is not about marriage. Okay, so sometimes we make a mistake, right? We want to proof text something. We go to, we go to the text for this is not about marriage. Paul is angling for something else here. And that brings us to the application. This is the meat of the text. Verse 4. Therefore, what do we ask? Why, what is it therefore? What is the therefore therefore, right? Therefore, brothers and sisters, or as a result of the principle and the illustration I just walked you through, you also, you Christ followers, you were made to die to the law. Underline that, made to die to the law. Through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to or belong to another to him who was raised from the dead. Now, does that help you see the connection to marriage? Here's the principle. Death frees a person to be joined to another. Death frees a person to be joined to another. Think back on our study now, in the last chapter, in chapter 6. Paul told us that when Christ died, we died. Right? By faith, we've been united with Christ so that his death became our death. Specifically, Paul says here that we died through the body of Christ. Interesting. What does that mean? Well, it means that in the flesh, in his body, Jesus lived out the perfect obedience that the law demanded. And on the cross, in his body, he bore the punishment that the law required. Make sense? So it's through his body that we die to the law. Here's the praise. In him, you and I have now been released from the power of the law. We've died to it. We've been released from the condemnation of the law. We've died to that. We were made to die, it says, to those things. Look at the language there. 
We were made to die to the law. Once again, we've, we've done this a, a number of times. Paul's using the aorist passive verb here. Okay? It means in a, in, in, a, in a moment in the past, something happened. We were passive. God was active. What? He made us die with Jesus. Isn't that amazing? He made us die. God made us die. Meaning on the cross, he put us to death with Christ. And by doing that, he liberated us from the condemning power of the law. That's powerful language, you guys. That's a great praise. But there's even more to this. He didn't leave it there. Okay? God doesn't just liberate us and then say, well, good luck. He now frees us for a purpose. What? That we might be joined to another. That we might be joined, united to Christ for all eternity. Goodbye to the old husband. Say hello to the new husband. You've died to this one. You're married to this one. This is really cool stuff. The language here is really, really powerful. Now you should see the marriage illustration more clearly. Back up again. All of humanity is under the authority of the law. Paul's already established that. The law has a permanent jurisdiction over every human being born into this world. It has a permanent jurisdiction over every human being. We saw that principle way back in chapters 1 and 2. God has put his universal moral law in the hearts of every human being, right? It bears upon our conscience. And he's shown himself in the created order so that all men are without excuse. We've already established that principle. So the law rules over men, and we're bound to it just as the wife is legally bound to her husband. Here's the key. As long as we're alive. As long as we're alive, the law rules over us. But we died. That's the key principle, guys. We died with Christ. We died. Death has parted us from the law until death do us part. Well, that's taken place. Death has parted us from the power and the condemnation of the law. We've died to that power over us. We've died to its legal hold over us. We've been released from that old husband. We're not married to sin and death anymore. This is the picture he's drawing. Now we're free to be joined to another. This is amazing news, guys. So as we sit here this morning, every single person in this room who has believed the gospel, who has stopped trusting in self, stopped trusting in your own good works, every person who has instead looked to Christ alone, trusted in him alone and the mercies of God for the forgiveness of your sins, if that's you, you've been released from the law and you've been joined to Christ. Both of those things are true. Released here, joined there. Very important principle. Collectively now, we are married to Christ. That's why scripture gives us this, it's a picture that's a little weird for us guys, right? We're the bride of Christ. It's very strange for us. But collect, I hope you look good in white, right? Collectively now, we're married to our husband. It was the law, now it's Christ. We're the bride of Christ, united with him for all eternity. Friends, listen to this. This is not about a list of commandments. This is not about a bunch of, you know, an external catalog of duties. That is not Christianity. What this is here, what Paul's describing, is a true spiritual union with a true living person. An all-glorious, all-providing, all-satisfying, eternal person. He's more real than the person sitting next to you right now. That's the truth. But there's still more. I mean... 
Part one was he freed us from the law. Part two, he said, I'm going to join you to myself, but there's still more. There's a distinct result which comes from now being married to Christ. Look at the end of verse four. It says, we're joined to another, that's Jesus, in order that we what? Might bear fruit to God. That's the reason why we've been married now to Christ, so that we might bear fruit for God. Listen, this is, a, this is a problem in the church today that needs to be dispelled. We didn't die to the law so that we can keep sinning. That wasn't the purpose. That God liberated you in the law so that you can just sin all you want. That was not the purpose. We didn't die to the law so that we can just sit on our hands and bask in our salvation as great as it is. That wasn't the purpose. We died to the law so that God can produce good fruit in us which advances his kingdom that's why that's why not again not because of external compulsion to do a bunch of things but because of a new motivation right to worship and serve and love our king that's why we've been married to christ how does that happen how does that happen how does this newfound freedom from the law produce fruit in us again it's not by our own strength it's not by our fortitude some of you guys out there you're you have, I'm, I'm this way as well. I have great fortitude. Man, you, you put me on a task, I'm going to dig in, and I'm going to work hard, and I'm not going to stop. But you know what? I fail. You fail. We all fail. Some of us have great strength and great fortitude, but that's not how we produce fruit for, for God's kingdom. It's not how it's done. It's not by us setting out to do better or to work harder. Paul says in verse 6, it's by the new way of the Spirit. By the new way of the Spirit. See it there in verse 6? See, now we're getting to the heart of the matter. This is really where the crux of Christianity takes place. Dying to the law means dying to external compliance. It means dying to a list of duties that just press on our will from the outside and say conform. We've died to that. That's old covenant. Being united to Christ means grace-based, spirit-living that produces real change from the inside out. Very different. It's the difference between stapling fruit on a tree, right? If I go out to a tree out here and I take a bunch of apples and I just staple them onto the limbs, they'll live for a few days, but then they'll shrivel up and die, right? That's just external. I'm just going to go staple a bunch of fruit and go look how nice my, my tree looks for now, but it will die. Versus real fruit that grows organically from the limbs. Why? Because it's connected to the root system. It's real. It's authentic change from the inside out. New desires, new attitudes, new choices, new behaviors. The Spirit longs to bring about these things in us, to transform us for the glory of God and for His kingdom. That's true new covenant change. Does this make sense? So there's two things that are found in every true believer. Salvation and good fruit. That's part of what Paul's saying here. Why? Because a tree that's been made good by the Lord will produce good fruit. Remember, he makes the tree good, not us. We don't staple fruit, and we don't set out to make our tree better. It's the Spirit who makes us better. It's the Spirit who makes us a good tree, and if we're a good tree, we'll produce good fruit. That's just the nature of things. Amen? What types of things? Well, Galatians tells us, right? What do the fruit of the Spirit look like? Love, joy, say it with me, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, that's the one we always miss, 
good <laughs> faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what the Spirit is working from within us, right? And that's, of course, that's a list of good fruit from Galatians 5, a chapter, by the way, that says a lot of the same things that Paul's saying here in Romans 7. If you want to do a nice comparison between Romans 7, go to Galatians 5. You'll see a whole bunch of, of very similar ideas. Let me read a couple of them. This is from Galatians 5. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. What's the yoke of slavery? The law. Don't go back to that. You've been freed from that. You died to that. Don't go back to it. But if you're led by the Spirit, Paul writes to the Galatians, you are not under law. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. In other words, produce fruit. Good. Now verse 5 is a contrasting verse. Take a look at verse 5. Do we understand 4? It's powerful. I, 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 would, I would recommend you, you meditate on that verse, maybe memorize it. It's a powerful verse. Verse 5, for while we were in the flesh, here's the contrast. While we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for what? For death. Very different situation, right? This is the contrast. While we were in the flesh is a looking back. This is a looking back to the time before we were converted prior to us trusting in Christ, to be in, in the flesh, when Paul writes about that, is to live in spiritual darkness. It's to be a slave to sin. It's the condition of every unbeliever on the earth. In all of his letters, we see Paul talking about this, this contrast, life in the flesh versus life in the spirit. He does it here again in verses five and six. Every one of us, once all of us lived in the realm of the flesh, right? We were enemies of God. We were rebellious towards him. Right? We were under the authority of the law. We were married to sin. And the fruit of our marriage to, to sin was what? Death. Spiritual eternal death. That's where we were all headed before Christ saved us. So there's, here's the thing. There's always fruit. This is a great principle. Every person on the earth is producing fruit. The question is, is it good fruit or is it the fruit of death? Every human being is producing one of those two. What makes the difference? The source of your connection. If you're joined to the law, you're going to produce fruit of death. If you're joined by faith to Christ, you're going to produce the fruit of life through the Holy Spirit. All of us, though, are producing the fruit of God or the fruit of death. That's just the way Paul lays it out here. What's really interesting in this, in this verse here is how he talks about how the law actually aroused sin in us. Do you see that there? It, our flesh is aroused by the law. Now, this isn't new. We saw this back in chapter 5. Remember when Paul wrote, the law came in, not so that transgression would be decreased, but that transgression would what? Increase. And we all said, what? I mean, Paul's audience would have said, hang on a second. You're telling me God gave us the law so sin would grow? It's exactly what he's saying. It's exactly it. Here's the principle. When the moral law meets unredeemed flesh, it brings out all of the sinful passions that are already present in us. Flesh and law together, boom, bring out sinful passions. Things that are deep within us, the corruption that, that we all have because of the original fall in the garden. And these sinful passions are inflamed, they're aroused, and all of our depravity comes out, all of our fallen nature comes out. And what, what kind of fruit's produced? The fruit of death. Galatians 5 tells us again what it is. Listen to, listen to the, the, the fruits of death. 
Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's not a, I don't think that's an exhaustive list, but it's a pretty long one, isn't it? And then Paul says this, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? They're the fruit of death. They're the fruit of death. By the way, does this mean that the law is evil? Okay, good. Somebody said no. I was waiting. If the law arouses our sinful passions, how can we say that it's good and holy? This, was, this is what Paul's audience would have been asking. They would have been a little bit put off by this. He's going to get there, but of course not, right? More on this next week. The answer is no. The law is not evil. The evil lies in us, doesn't it? The evil lies in us, in our flesh. What Paul is going to call later on our bodies of death. That's where the evil lies. But when unredeemed flesh meets the law, boom, sinful passions are aroused. And we see it happening all around us. The moral law as designed by God is simply doing what it was intended to do, to expose sin. Right? We've already seen that. That's the knowledge of sin comes by the law. Now we see that it arouses and inflames us to even greater levels. Why? Why? Why would the law do that? Why would God want to send his law to arouse sin? So that we'll be led to a savior. That's, that's the first use of the law, right? So that it would be a tutor to point us to the only remedy, the only answer for our problem. Look, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, I'm here to tell you that's the only remedy. The sinful passions that are being aroused in you because of your unredeemed flesh and God's law, and you're like, I don't know why I do what I do, there's only one remedy. You need to die to that husband, and you need to find a new one. You need to find Jesus. That's it. That's the answer. Now, let's finish. Let's look at verse 6. Paul's going to come back to the marriage illustration and give us something new to chew on here in verse 6. But now... Okay? Whenever you see that, we, we know that a change has happened, right? We talked about being in the flesh, but now. We, those who are in Christ, right? We've been released from the law, just like that woman whose husband has passed away, having died to that by which we were bound. This thing that held us captive. Here's the important part. Here's the purpose statement of the verse. When you see a so that, it's very important. So that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. See it there? So, two big contrasts here. Last slide. Two big contrasts. First, spirit versus law, or the letter, or the written code, however your translation puts it. Second, newness versus oldness. Now, you hear an echo of this, by the way, in 2 Corinthians 3. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 and 6. Paul says, Not that we're adequate in ourselves... To consider anything is coming from ourselves, our adequacy is from God. Listen, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter does what? The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So what's really in view here is a contrast between the old covenant 
under Moses and the new covenant established in the blood of Christ. That's what's being talked about here. Well, I don't have time to go into that, but we think about the the classic passages that describe the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. They're worth reading. They're fantastic. We don't have time to go into all the details, but I'll summarize two things that we see in the prophets of the Old Testament prophesying the coming of the new covenant. First, we learn that in the new covenant, the law will, will, will no longer be mainly external, written on stone, right? That's what, the, that's what it means when it says the letter. Instead, it's going to be internal. Internal. In other words, the decisive thing about obedience to the commands of God under the new covenant, it will no longer be a demand from the outside, but a desire from within. That's what's going to be so different between old and new. It's no longer, again, this force pressing on our will from the outside, saying, do this, do this, do this. It's a desire produced within us by the Spirit. And secondly, God promises to put a new spirit within his people. And then he further promises that that new spirit will, get this, cause us, cause us to walk in his statutes and commandments. That's, what a promise, right? The spirit within us is going to cause that, is going to bring that about. That's why we read that God will complete his work in us. He will cause that to take place. When was the new covenant put into effect? Every time we come to the communion table, we read the story, right? In the upper room in Luke 22, after they'd eaten, Jesus took the cup and he said what? This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. The bloodshedding of Christ inaugurates the new covenant. Because Christ's blood was shed, our sins are forgiven. Because Christ's blood was shed, the Spirit has now been given to us as a guide to strengthen us to walk in His commands. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I'm going to give you my Spirit who will cause you to do that. Is that cool? It's not up to us. It's us simply cooperating with the Spirit. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. By the way, I'm sending the Spirit. He'll cause you to do it. God is good. He's so good. We'll have a lot more to say about this later. This is sort of just a primer here today. But know that God had a design and a plan. Listen to this. The old covenant was inadequate, wasn't it? It was incomplete. Were people saved under the old covenant? Absolutely. But how? By faith. But it was inadequate. It needed to be, it needed to be superseded by a much greater covenant that would be established in the Messiah, in God's very own Son. Hebrews 8 says when the new covenant comes, it makes the old obsolete. We'll talk in future weeks about what that exactly that means. But now, just quickly, take a quick peek at the next verse. Look at the next verse we're going to touch on next Sunday. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Much to explore there. Is the law evil? Is the law sin? What exactly was God's plan for today? Here's the takeaways. I got two quick takeaways for you, then we'll be done. For every true Christ follower that's in the room this morning, first of all, rejoice in the fact that the law no longer has power over you. Man, that's something we should constantly be rejoicing over. The law no longer has power over us. It no longer condemns us. Why? Because Christ has been your substitute, and he has met every demand of the law. Praise him for that. Secondly, now as a redeemed Christian, Rejoice in the fact that God's moral law is energized in you by the Holy Spirit to fulfill the law of Christ, that he will cause you to walk in his commands. Rejoice in that, that he is doing a work and promises to complete it. To love God more and more, 
to love your neighbor as yourself. That's a great praise. May God continue to do that work in us until next Sunday. Amen? Let's pray. Father, once again, we see your sovereignty in all of this. You have marked us out for salvation, that you have done the work necessary, that you have transformed our hearts, that you've brought us into your kingdom, and now you say, I have caused you to die to the law, I have caused you to be united to me, and I will cause fruit to be born in your life. May we be blown away by that this week. May we meditate on these verses. May we just... Just praise you, Lord, because of your sovereignty, because of all that you want to do in us and all that you're going to do in us. And may we lean into that, Lord. May we lean into that as your children who want to please you. As the Spirit nudges us, as the Spirit urges us, may we lean into that and say, yes, Lord, and obey your commands. Why? Not because of something from the outside, but because we love you. Because we want to worship you with all of our lives because of what you've done for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for bleeding for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to shed your blood for this new covenant that we call our own. We worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.